the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Later in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Justin Folk. He's the director of No Safe Spaces. You have a right to remain silent. It's the new film uh, produced by Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla that focuses on the threats, current threats to the First Amendment freedom of speech. The uh, film opens in theaters this Friday. We'll give you all the important details. We'll also talk with Mark Stewart. He was the lead singer of Audio Adrenaline. His latest book is Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose, published by Thomas Nelson. He'll join us also in the 5 o'clock hour. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, a Stanford law professor is facing criticism after bringing up President Trump's youngest son in a joke during Wednesday's impeachment hearing, sparking laughs from some in the House Judiciary Committee audience and provoking a furious response from the White House, mainly First Lady Melania Trump. The White House blasted Carlin as classless and the Trump campaign called her joke disgusting. First Lady Melania Trump, Barron's mother, was incensed. A minor child deserves privacy and should be kept out of politics, she tweeted. Pamela Carlin, you should be ashamed of your very angry and obviously biased public pandering and using of a child to do it. Carlin later apologized, rightly, but put in another dig at the president in the process. I want to apologize for what I said earlier about the president's son. It was wrong of me to do that. I was I wish the president would apologize, obviously, for the things that he's done. That's wrong. But I do regret having said that. Well, Carlin is clearly not a fan of Trump. In a newly surfaced video from 2017, she told an American Constitution Society panel that she couldn't stomach walking past a Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. At the same event, she also accused Trump of assaulting more women than 99.99 percent of all the people who have entered this country illegally. Well, during Wednesday's hearing, Representative Matt Gates, a Republican from Florida, noted that Carlin had also appeared on an anti-Trump podcast disparaging conservatives and donated $1,200 to Obama, 2000 to Hillary, and 1000 to Elizabeth Warren. The controversy over Carlin's joke overshadowed a day of testimony on Wednesday where lawmakers and legal scholars sparred, not presenting evidence, but simply commenting on what's already been said, with Democrats and their witnesses reviving concerns raised during the Russia probe and Republicans and their sole witness, three to one, arguing the impeachment of Trump seems predetermined, woefully inadequate and dangerous. Well, the Trump administration is considering sending as many as 14,000 additional troops, dozens of more ships and dozens of ships, more doesn't belong in that, and other military hardware to counter the growing threat of Iran. The Wall Street Journal reports the move could double the number of U.S. military personnel who have been sent to the region since the start of a troop buildup in May. President Trump is expected to make the decision of the new deployments as soon as this month. Just last week, the head of Iran's Revolutionary Guard threatened to destroy the United States and its Middle Eastern allies, accusing them during a televised speech of investigating the violent protest, rather instigating the violent protests that erupted in November after the announcement of massive fuel 
price hikes. Uh, they are saying that as many as a thousand people have been killed in that clash. And a sailor, sailor rather, sailor opened fire at Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard in Hawaii on Wednesday, killing at least two civilians before he turned the gun on himself. The uh, shooting took place near the USS Columbia, a Los Angeles class um, attack marine uh, or submarine. The shooter was an active duty U.S. Navy petty officer attached to the submarine, according to a naval official. The gunman shot three civilians, two of whom died before he shot himself in the head, according to a preliminary incident report. Um, and again, more information is forthcoming on that. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has now officially asked Jerry Nadler, the chair of the Judiciary Committee in the House, to proceed with drafting articles of impeachment. And the Senate has confirmed four federal judges while the House heard impeachment testimony. Jerry Nadler uh, fell asleep apparently during the impeachment hearing, according to PJ Media. And the president has canceled the NATO press conference and headed back to Washington, D.C. after being mocked by Justin Trudeau. Nancy Pelosi's uh, drug pricing plan could keep 100 new medicines from reaching patients, according to the Washington Free Beacon. And a judge has temporarily halted construction of a private border wall in Texas. Two Russian hackers have been charged in sweeping malware attack on the United States. And uh, George Zimmerman is suing Trayvon Martin's family, the young man he was accused of having killed, for $100 million in damages. I'm not sure what the logic is on that. On this day in history, 1791, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart dies in Vienna at age 35. Also on this day in 1792, George Washington is re-elected president. John Adams is re-elected vice president. 1848, President James K. Polk triggers the gold rush of 49 by confirming that gold was discovered in them thou hills in California. 1901, on this date, Walt Disney is born in Chicago. On this day in history, 1932, Albert Einstein is granted a visa, making it possible for him to travel to the United States. 1933, the national prohibition has come to an end as Utah becomes the 36th state to ratify the 21st Amendment to the Constitution, repealing the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. On this day in history, 1977, Egypt breaks diplomatic relations with Syria, Libya, Algeria, Iraq, and South Yemen in the wake of criticism that followed President Anwar Sadat's peace overtures to Israel. And on this day in history, 1988, the federal grand jury in uh, North Carolina indicts PTL club founder Jim Baker and former aide Richard Dorch on fraud and conspiracy charges. Baker would be convicted on all counts. Dorch would plead guilty to four counts and cooperate with prosecutors in exchange for a lighter sentence. Baker is initially sentenced to 45 years in prison. The term would be reduced to eight years, and he served a total of about five. On this day in history, 1994, Republicans choose Newt Gingrich to be the first GOP Speaker of the House in four decades. And in 2008, a judge in Las Vegas sentenced O.J. Simpson to 33 years in prison with eligibility for parole after nine. For an armed robbery at a hotel room, Simpson would be paroled in October of 2017. Before we take our break, I want to take a moment and give you an opportunity to win a pair of orchestra-level tickets to the Oregon Symphony's Gospel Christmas at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. These tickets are for the Friday opening night performance, December 13th, 7.30 p.m. We'd love for you to have those tickets. All you need to do is pick up the phone and call 800 845 
800-845-2162 and be the third caller. 800-845-2162. Caller number three, a pair of orchestra-level tickets to Oregon Symphony's Gospel Christmas at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall Friday, December 13th, my mama's birthday, at 7.30 p.m. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, House Judiciary uh, Committee Chairman Jared Nadler has announced a new impeachment hearing for next week. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has called for House Democrats to proceed with articles of impeachment against President Trump. But questions are, well, they remain over whether she has uh, enough votes, enough Democrats for to vote for impeachment as the effort uh, is moving forward at breakneck speed. Well, Pelosi, during a televised remark uh, about impeachment earlier today, didn't suggest any particular topic timeline for a vote, saying only, we will proceed in a manner worthy of our oath of office. Well, the timing of this vote could be indicative of whether Pelosi has enough Democrats to vote to impeach. She's a master of reading her caucus, and if she has the votes, she'll likely give the green light to impeach on the floor. If she doesn't have the votes, impeachment could wait, conceivably, until next year. A major milepost, though, could come at 5 p.m. on Friday. Democrats have said the administration has until close of business tomorrow to decide if it will cooperate with the investigation or try to defend the president. Normally, they're given about a week or so. The president's been given 24 hours. If the administration says it's willing to play, then impeachment could stretch out a bit. If not, Democrats may operate under a compressed time frame. Of course, there's the holidays and then the first uh, vote that will be taking place in about a couple of months. Well, this is a hard vote to make one uh, way or the other. That's a quote from Representative Jeff Van Drew, a Democrat from New Jersey, who opposed the inquiry because it began and remained skeptical of the impeachment efforts, told um, uh, reporters on Thursday. A simple majority, 216 of 431 members, is needed to impeach. There are 233 Democrats, meaning that presuming anti-Trump independent Representative Justin Amash backs impeachment. Democrats can lose 18 of their own and still impeach the president. A member of Pelosi's leadership team says this week that the backing of bills, um, uh, the backlog of bills rather uh, this month in the House works against a December impeachment vote, explaining that impeachment doesn't fit the holiday spirit. Hmm. Van Drew was one of just two Democrats who opposed the inquiry alongside Minnesota's Colin Peterson, but Republicans are hoping that uh, the 31 Democrats from districts that supported Trump in 2016 could be the key to defeating the impeachment effort. Well, as I mentioned, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jared Nadler has announced a new impeachment hearing for next week where committee lawyers will present evidence in the case as Democrats begin to draft articles of impeachment at the direction of the Speaker. Nadler scheduled the hearing for Monday, 9 a.m., where committee Uh, The committee will receive presentations of evidence from both Democrat and Republican counsels for both the Judiciary and Intelligence Committees. Now, interestingly, these aren't new witnesses. They're simply referring to what's already been uncovered in the Intelligence Committee series of hearings. The announcement comes shortly after the uh, Speaker said that the articles of impeachment against the President should move forward. Nadler's committee held its first hearing in the process on Wednesday, featuring four law professors, most of them Democrats, Uh, Democrat invited witnesses who presented arguments in favor of impeachment. They stated that the president abused his office. Uh, The sole witness called by Republicans, though, argued the contrary. He said the legal case to impeach Trump was woefully inadequate and even dangerous. He's not a Trump supporter or a Republican. Nevertheless, Pelosi said today that the, the facts are uncontested, which is an interesting word that is oft repeated, given the fact that the Republicans have contested the process, that Trump abused his power for his own personal 
personal political benefit at the expense of our national security. Today, I am asking our chairman to proceed with the articles. Uh, and that's uh, that will be the big news tomorrow. Uh, I should say Monday morning with the Nadler committee, the justice uh, uh, committee um, holding its first hearing at 9 a.m. Uh, in the morning on Monday. I thought David Harson, had an interesting article in National Review in which uh, he tries to put some historic perspective on what's going on now. And perhaps as we've been talking about and reflecting on uh, Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon, presidential misconduct, some historical perspective. He uh, writes that this week, Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee trotted out a trio of dispassioned legal experts to explain why the impeachment of Donald Trump was justified. They were there to bring a veneer of gravitas and irradiation to uh, what's been until now a partisan affair. But however smart people such as Michael Gerhardt, distinguished professor of constitutional law at the University of North Carolina, might be, they aren't immune from peddling partisan absurdities. Once Gerhardt argued that Trump's conduct was worse than the misconduct of any prior president, we no longer had any intelligent obligation to take him seriously on the topic. Because while I'm certainly not a distinguished professor, I am very confident that history began before 2016, which means that even if I I concede Gerhardt's framing of Trump's actions, bribery, extortion, etc. I can rattle off at least a dozen instances of presidential misconduct that are both morally and constitutionally worse than Trump's blundering attempt to launch a self-serving Ukrainian investigation into his rival's shady son. Let's ignore for a moment that the American presidents have owned their fellow human beings and focus instead on the fact that in 1942, the president of the United States signed an executive order that allowed him to unilaterally intern around 123 thousand American citizens of Japanese descent. Not only was the policy deliberately racist, it w- amounted to a full-bore attack on about half the Constitution that he had sworn to uphold. Such an attack was a specialty of FDR's, despite uh, the all- um, positive things written about his imperial presidency. Woodrow Wilson, who regularly said things like a Negro's place is in the cornfield, didn't merely resegregate the civil service, personally firing more than a dozen supervisors for the sin of being black. He first pushed for and then oversaw the enactment of the Sedition Act. Wilson threw dissenters and political adversaries into prison, instructed the postmaster to refuse delivery of literature he deemed unpatriotic, and uh, created an unconstitutional civilian police force that targeted Americans for political dissent. So all of what Wilson did was worse. Sorry to say, but despite their great achievements, both John Adams and Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus, the latter without any congressional approval. Surely, deep down, even those who act as if Russian social media ads can topple the republic believe that denying citizens their fundamental rights of due process is a more serious offense than President Donald Trump's rhetoric and actions. We can go on and on. Andrew Jackson ignored courts and laws and used his power to ethnically cleanse lands that he also sometimes happened to have a financial interest in. Teddy Roosevelt threatened American citizens with military intervention and abused his power in one way or another every day of his presidency. A reckless John Kennedy probably shared his uh, mistress with a leading Chicago mobster whom he met at the White House, setting himself up for blackmail or worse. Nixon may have lost his job after obstructing an investigation into freelance GOP spying on his political opponents, but Lyndon Johnson skipped any pretense and just asked the FBI and CIA to spy for him. CIA officials illegally operating inside the United States spied on the Goldwater campaign in 1964 and brought Johnson information he used to undermine his opponents at every turn. That's 
worse. Johnson also lied about the Gulf of Tonkin, escalating the Vietnam War, and then uh, kept lying about the war until he left office. I won't even bother to catalog the instance of other presidents misleading the public, either through uh, lies of commission or uh, lies of omission in their efforts to precipitate or extend military conflicts, costing thousands of American lives. All of this misconduct is in every conceivable way worse than Trump's actions. Now, this isn't to justify his, but to put it into historic context, the comments made on Wednesday. Bill Clinton couldn't go a month without some shady or humiliating scandal. Now, maybe Gerhardt doesn't view incidents that weren't investigated, prosecuted, contemporaneously illegal as misconduct. That would be unfortunate, but even so, referring to Trump's actions as worse than the misconduct of any prior president would be terminally ahistorical. Another Democratic expert, Stanford Law Professor Pamela Carlin, actually drew applause for a canned line about Constitution's prohibition on titles of nobility, uh, making reference to the president's son. Carlin's line might have induced only some eye rolling from uh, some uh, viewers and listeners if you hadn't known that she was also a Barack Obama donor. Barack Obama, the same president who ignored Congress and created laws by fiat, the man who ignored laws when they were inconvenient and then ignored courts that told him to stop doing so. The man who ignored congressional subpoenas after his administration put some 2,000 weapons into the hands of narco traffickers and an Islamic terrorist, leading to the murder of at least one American. More than once, Obama spied on the press. He ordered law enforcement to back off a terrorist organization that was engaged in criminal behavior in the United States so that he could make a deal with with Iran and bolster his political agenda. More than any modern president, Obama was rebuked by the Supreme Court, often nine to zero, to watch a supporter of the previous president, a president who abused his executive power in unprecedented ways, play acting as a Madisonian purist is intolerable. Of course, to argue, sure, he's uh, bad, but uh, hey, there were worse presidents than Donald Trump is a terrible defense. Indeed, it is Uh, No defense at all. Impeachment should be decided on the facts of the case and nothing else besides. But this isn't a case in favor of Trump. It's a plea for people to resist the compulsion to say insane things because they dislike this president. There is plenty to criticize without embracing hyperbole or losing all sense of historic perspective. Again, a column by uh, David Harsinyi in National Review dated December 5th. Definitely worth rereading. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, in the next hour, we'll talk with Justin Folk. He's the director of No Safe Spaces. You have a right to remain silent. It is the new uh, film by Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla, the comedian, that's uh, in theaters on Friday, dealing with the First Amendment and the challenges, the threats to our First Amendment right to free speech. He'll be joining us at 5. And then we'll talk with the uh, former lead singer of Audio Adrenaline, Mark Stewart. His uh, latest book, Losing My Voice, To Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose. Now, he literally lost his voice, and that put an end to the group that was very popular Um, And he's going to talk about what that experience was like and what he's learned in the interim um, since having lost his voice. Well, I quoted uh, a moment ago from uh, one columnist, um, David Harsinyi. I also thought uh, Victor Davis Hanson also had a very interesting piece, The Loss of Our Watchmen's Moral Authority. He writes that one symptom of a society in, in crisis is the unreliability or even corruption of its own auditors. After all, when the watchmen have lost moral authority to watch, who can be believed or trusted? Or as the Roman satirist um, Juvenal 
famously put it, who will guard the guardians? It was recently reported that FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith altered an email to bolster a suspicious FBI effort to obtain a foreign intelligence surveillance court warrant authorizing the surveillance of Carter Page, a one-time employee of the Trump campaign. And by the way, that report is going to, the Horowitz report is expected out next week. If true, Kleinsmith helped the FBI successfully delude the court into granting what was likely an illegal request to spy on the Trump campaign. Kleinsmith was reportedly expelled from special counsel Robert Mueller's legal team for cheering on opposition to the Trump presidency by writing Viva la Resistance in a text message discussion. Well, after FBI Director James Comey was fired, he leaked his own memos of private and confidential conversations with the president, whether Comey would go to jail hinged on how the FBI would categorize his memos post facto as merely confidential or as secret or top secret. Two of the adjudicators were Lisa Page and Peter Strzok, former Comey friends and FBI subordinates. The FBI eventually ruled that the leaking of the memos was not felonious. Page and Strzok, who were involved in an amorous relationship, were later dismissed from Mueller's team for exchanging texts that showed bias and hatred toward the president, the object of their team's investigation. We are awaiting the results of the investigations being conducted by the Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz and federal prosecutor John Durham. Both are examining whether the nation's top investigators at the FBI, CIA, DOJ were themselves corrupt. Representative Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, recently wrapped up an impeachment inquiry to discover whether President Trump committed impeachable offenses. Schiff himself has lied about the prior relationship between the so-called whistleblower and his own staff. He read into the congressional record his version of a transcript of a presidential conversation that was so inaccurate and misleading that Schiff was forced to uh, relabel it a parody. In surreal fashion, Schiff stated that he did not know the whistleblower's identity. Then, during the hearings, he claimed that he wanted to protect the whistleblower's anonymity by halting all questions about direct communications with the whistleblower, whose identity Schiff supposedly did not know. The whistleblower, we are initially told, was a civic-minded, nonpartisan civil servant who risked his or her career to report alleged presidential misconduct that they had at least heard of, didn't hear it firsthand. Although the whistleblower's identity has not been confirmed, what has been reported in the press suggests the very opposite of such a glowing nonpartisan portrait. The whistleblower went first to the House Intelligence Committee staff for guidance on how to lodge a complaint. The whistleblower's lawyer was known as an anti-Trump activist who had previously boasted about the effort to remove Trump, which he uh, compared to a coup. The whistleblower relied on uh, hearsay and had no firsthand knowledge of presidential wrongdoing. Critics allege that the whistleblower will not come forward to testify as promised by Schiff because under cross-examination, the whistleblower would have to detail a collaborative association with anti-Trump partisans and Schiff's staff. It's easy for our legal and ethical custodians to hound unpopular politicians whom the media despises and who incur strident political opposition. Investigators and inquisitors know that any dirt they can dig up, even if questionably obtained and of dubious truth, will earn them praise. In the case of Trump, our watchmen embraced any means necessary to reach the supposedly noble and popular ends of weakening or removing him. But the reasons we have auditors in the first place is for precisely the opposite purpose, to examine evidence fairly, even in the if the final conclusions are likely to exonerate someone deemed boorish and crude by most 
federal officialdom. In other words, our investigatory agencies should function like the First Amendment, which primarily serves not to protect free speech that we all admire, but to protect unpopular speech that most prefer not to hear. The moral test of our Justice Department, the congressional opposition and the FBI was to give even an often unpopular president some semblance of a fair audit. All three so far have flopped miserably. Their failures remind us why nearly 2,000 years ago, Juvenal believed that society could not outsource the supposedly exalted moral officials the final authority to judge others. Instead, we must count only on ourselves. Again, that report is um, out in, uh, I believe it's the 9th, which is next week, and we'll see whether or not there was sufficient grounds for uh, the surveillance of um, campaign personnel during the 2016 race involving the Trump campaign. Well, the Pentagon is considering a plan to add up to 7,000 additional troops to the Middle East to counter what it sees as an increasing threat from Iran to U.S. defense officials say, but uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper has not made any decision thus far, according to the Pentagon's top policy advisor. We're watching the situation where the Iranians both have conducted attacks in recent months, and we are concerned about the threat stream that we are seeing, John Rood, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, said during Senate Armed Services Committee testimony on Thursday when asked about the Iranian threat. Rood replied, yes, when asked by Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican out of Tennessee, if the Pentagon was considering deploying more forces to the Middle East without being more specific. Rood added that the U.S. military constantly was considering options for moving troops around not only to the Middle East, but to and from elsewhere in the world. Well, the additional American forces being considered aren't Army or Marine infantry units, but air and missile defense units, as well as additional warships, officials say. These forces would be similar to the types of reinforcements announced in May. One of a group of a patriotic anti-missile batteries was, uh, I should say, patriot anti-missile batteries, was held in reserve at the time of the announcement last spring. The aircraft carrier Harry S. Truman, delayed for months following an electronic um, electrical problem this fall, finally went out to sea. It's currently outside the Mediterranean and is expected to make its way eventually to the Middle East to relieve the USS Abraham Lincoln, who has been at sea in and around the Persian Gulf since May. Late last month, Lincoln entered the uh, Gulf for the first time in the past six months. Uh, Both nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, Truman and Lincoln, could steam together for a show of force to Iran a few days before Lincoln leaves for San Diego, California, as part of a long-scheduled port shift. Well, Truman alone was bringing over 5,000 additional sailors and a full air wing of roughly 80 aircraft, including dozens of uh, F-A-18 Super Hornet attack and fighter jets. Since May, the Pentagon has deployed over 14,000 additional forces, half aboard warships to the Middle East to join the 60,000 American troops currently deployed in the region, known inside the Pentagon as Central Command, an area stretching from Egypt through Afghanistan. In a statement released this afternoon, Pentagon Press Secretary Alyssa Farah pushed back strongly on a report Wednesday in the Wall Street Journal saying as many as 14,000 additional troops were being considered. As discussed, she said, in the hearing today, we are constantly evaluating the threat situation around the world and considering our options. We adjust our force posture and troop levels based on uh, adversary actions and the dynamic security situation. Secretary Esper spoke to Chairman Inhofe this morning and reaffirmed that we are not considering sending 14,000 additional troops to the Middle East at this time. Farah said Senator James Inhofe has been the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee and apparently had already been informed. 
So that's a fluid situation at this point. We'll continue to follow the details. Well, the Trump administration yesterday tightened work requirements for food stamp recipients, a move that will potentially affect hundreds of thousands of people who rely on the program. The new rule is the first of three proposals targeting the supplemental nutrition program known as SNAP, which feeds more than 36 million people. The plan will limit states from exempting work eligible adults from having to maintain steady employment to receive benefits. The Agriculture Department estimates the change would save roughly $5.5 billion over five years and cut benefits for nearly 700,000 SNAP recipients. Under the current rules, work-eligible, able-bodied adults between 18 and 49 and without dependents can receive only three months of SNAP benefits in a three-year period if they don't meet the 20-hour workweek requirement. States with high unemployment rates or a lack of sufficient jobs can waive those time limits. Under the new rule, however, states can only issue waivers if a city or county has an unemployment rate of 6% or higher. The waivers will be good for one year and will require the governor to support the request. The final rule will be published in the Federal Register on Thursday, going to effect in April. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our uh, 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk about the uh, new movie, No Safe Spaces, featuring Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla on the uh, decline in the First Amendment uh, freedom of speech. We'll also talk with Mark Stewart, author of Losing My Voice, to find it, how a rock star discovered his greatest purpose. Mark Stewart, of course, was the lead singer of Audio Adrenaline, and uh, his voice has not yet recovered and will not recover. He'll explain all of that when he joins us later in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, apparently, Iran has, um, is, has used the continuing chaos in Iraq to build up a hidden arsenal of short-term ballistic missiles in the country of Iraq, part of a widening effort to try to Im- intimidate the Middle East and assert its power, according to American intelligence and military officials. That buildup comes as the United States was, has rebuilt its military presence in the Middle East to counter emerging threats to American interests, including attacks on oil, tankers, and facilities that intelligence officials have blamed on Iran. Since May, the president and the administration have sent roughly 14,000 additional troops to the region, primarily to staff Navy ships and missile defense systems. But new intelligence about Iran's stockpiles and missiles in Iraq is the latest sign that the administration's efforts to deter Tehran by sanctions and other means, by increasing the military presence there, has largely failed. The missiles pose a threat to American allies and partners in the region, including Israel and Saudi Arabia, and could endanger American troops, according to intelligence officials. Both Iran and Iraq have been gripped in recent weeks by sometimes violent public protests. In Iraq, some are protesting against Iranian influence. Iraqis do not want to be led around on a leash by Iranians. That's a quote from Representative Elisa Slotkin, a Democrat from Michigan and a member of the House Armed Services Committee. In an interview, she went on to say, unfortunately, due to the chaos and confusion in the Iraqi central government, Iran is paradoxically the best poised to take advantage of the grassroots unrest. Iranian officials didn't return um, requests for comment on what's currently happening. Of course, they're not... uh, on speaking terms with the United States, at least cordially. Tehran is engaged in a shadow war, striking at countries in the Middle East, but thinly disguising the origin of those attacks to reduce the chance of provoking a response or escalating the fight, military and intelligence officials are saying. An arsenal of missiles outside its borders gives advantages to the Iranian government, military, paramilitary, 
in any standoff with the United States and its regional allies. If the United States or Israel were to bomb Iran, its military could use missiles hidden in Iraq to strike back against Israel or a Gulf country. The mere existence of these weapons could also help deter the attacks as well. Intelligence officials wouldn't discuss the precise model of ballistic missiles that Iran has sneaked into Iraq, but short-range missiles have a range of about 600 miles, meaning that one fired from the outskirts of Baghdad, for example, could strike Jerusalem. American intelligence officials first warned about new Iranian missiles in Iraq last year, and Israel launched an airstrike aimed at destroying the hidden Iranian weaponry. But since then, American officials have said the threat is growing, with new ballistic missiles being secretly moved uh, into the country. Officials said Iran was using Iraqi Shiite militias, many of which have uh, long supplied and controlled. Uh, Iran has to move and hide the missiles. The Iranian-backed militias have effectively taken control of a number of roads, bridges, transportation, infrastructure in Iraq, easing Tehran's ability to sneak the missiles into the country. Well, people are not paying enough attention to the fact that ballistic missiles in the last year have been placed in Iraq by Iran with the ability to project violence on the region. Um, Ms. Slotkin went on to say she's an expert on Shiite militias who recently visited Baghdad to meet the Iraqi and American officials there. Ms. Slotkin uh, pressed Iraqi uh, leaders on the threat from Iran, telling them that if Iran launched a missile from Iraqi territory, it could threaten the American training effort in Iraq and other support from the United States. Well, the United States was concerned about potential Iranian aggression in the near future. John Rood, whom I quoted earlier, the Undersecretary of Defense, uh, told reporters uh, earlier this week, uh, provided no details about what um, prompted official concerns, but did raise a concern. CNN reported on Tuesday about American intelligence officials warning about new threats by Iran against American forces in the Middle East. And this is an expression, an extension of that. Well, tensions in that region in the Persian Gulf have risen since attacks on oil tankers this spring, including off the coast of the United Arab Emirates, as well as a major drone and missile strike on Saudi oil fields in September. The Trump administration and European allies have blamed Iran, which has denied responsibility for the attacks. Plausible deniability. Mr. Trump opted against a military strike in response to those attacks, but has authorized the United States Cyber Command to strike targets in the country. Although military and intelligence officials have said such electronic attacks are unlikely to deter uh, Tehran. Uh, last year, Reuters reported that Iran had moved ballistic missiles into Iraq in a public report released last month. The Defense Intelligence Agency reported that Iran's ballistic missiles were a primary component of its strategic deterrent. Tehran has been uh, building up its arsenal to better dissuade the United States, Israel and Saudi Arabia from attacking. And while decades of international sanctions have weakened the uh, military there, the agency's report said Iran has invested in its domestic infrastructure, allowing it to continue to develop capable crews and ballistic missiles that could be a threat uh, to this country and to countries in the region. In a televised speech on Wednesday, Georgia GOP Governor Brian Kemp officially announced financial executive Kelly Loeffler uh, as his pick to be the state's next U.S. senator. Well, Kemp, who has uh, mulled over hundreds of applications in the months since Georgia Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson announced he would be stepping down, officially unveiled Loeffler as his uh, choice on Wednesday in a speech at the Georgia State Capitol. The governor said Loeffler would serve in the Senate as a steadfast conservative who would support the Trump agenda. Kelly Loeffler will stand with our president, Senator uh, Perdue, and our, their allies in the House and Senate to keep America great, Kemp said. Invoking the president's reelection slogan, she will end this impeachment circus in Washington and get Congress back to work. 
for the people of our country. Well, despite uh, Loeffler holding no prior political experience, uh, Kemp chose her because he is betting that she will help bring female voters back into Georgia in the GOP fold. Additionally, Loeffler's strong business background was viewed as an advantage, allowing her to self-fund ahead of what would likely be a tough 2020 election cycle in the state. Now, speaking for the first time as a senator, uh, senator designate, Loeffler made it clear that she has conservative um, bona fides. It's uh, I'm not a career politician or even someone who's run for office. I've spent the last 25 years building businesses, taking risks and creating jobs. I've spent uh, my life trying to get to Washington, Loeffler said. I'm a lifelong conservative, pro-Second Amendment, pro-Trump, pro-military, pro-wall, she went on. Uh, which earned applause from the crowd gathered around her there. I make no apologies for my conservative values, and I look forward to supporting President Trump's conservative judges, she said, adding that she is strongly pro-life and voiced explicit support for South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham's 20-week abortion ban. The abortion on demand agenda is immoral, she went on to say, also adding, when it comes to protecting innocent life, I look to God because every life is a blessing. Well, Loeffler is mostly known for being the co-owner of Georgia's WNBA team, the Atlanta Dream. She also serves as the chief executive at Backed B-A-K-K-T, a subsidiary of the Georgia-based Intercontinental Exchange, Inc., uh, Loeffler is married to the Intercontinental Exchange's founder and CEO, Jeff Sprecher, and together the couple has made uh, considerable donations to the Republican National Committee in recent uh, time. However, she will likely need to keep proving her conservative credentials in the run-up to the 2020 elections, where voters will decide if she can finish the remainder of Isaacson's term. The days leading up to her appointment have been uh, marked with Republican infighting, as some party hardliners believe she's not conservative enough for that seat. Uh, Sean Hannity, media personality and lawmakers like Florida Representative uh, Matt Gates, heavily pressured uh, uh, Kemp to shy away from Loeffler and to pick Georgia Representative Doug Collins instead. Uh, Gates went so far as to threaten Kemp with a primary challenger if he chose the businesswoman. Those efforts were not successful in changing the governor's mind in the end. It's not clear if there will be a primary challenger. Collins, for his part, has not ruled out a 2020 campaign for the Senate seat. He said he will make a decision sometime after Kemp's announcement. As for national uh, Republicans, they appear to be coalescing around Kemp's choice. Everybody knows that a generational leader like Johnny Isaacson is irreplaceable. But Ms. Loeffler has a... Impressive record in business and community leadership. They're confident she is well prepared to continue Senator Isaacson's history uh, and his legacy, advocating for veterans, strengthening our national defense, fighting for middle class families, according to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Well, coming up, we're going to um, have news and traffic here at the top of the hour. And then we're going to talk about a, a film that's coming out on Friday. I would encourage you to take advantage of the opportunity to see it in this limited run. It's titled No Safe Spaces. You have a right to remain silent. And it uh, really focuses on the threats to the First Amendment freedom of speech that we have enjoyed and so often take for granted. It is under threat. We'll also talk with Mark Stewart, author of Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose, the book published by Thomas Nelson. And of course, Mark Stewart was the uh, lead singer of Audio Adrenaline. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Now, my guess is you've heard about the movie No Safe Spaces. There's been a lot of buzz about it. Well, it's about to be released in theaters Friday. 
Well, No Safe Spaces is the highly anticipated crowdfunded docudrama documentary, and it stars comedian and podcaster Adam Carolla and radio talk show host and educator Dennis Prager. Well, the film was uh, filmed over the last two years across the country, and it follows the story of challenges to free speech in the United States as Corolla and Prager speak with some of the most important thinkers in academia, politics, media, and entertainment. And it follows uh, Prager as he testifies before the U.S. Senate and Corolla as he testifies before the House of Representatives on the value of our First Amendment freedom. Well, the film features a roundtable of comedians discussing what has uh, come to be called cancel culture, the back Backlash against comedy that crosses free speech boundaries. Well, it is a film that is must see. And here to talk with us about that is Justin Folk. He's the director of No Safe Spaces coming to theaters this Friday. Justin Folk, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Well, this is really very exciting. There's been a lot of buzz around the film. There's been a lot of buzz around um, Prager University and whether or not they uh, are free to be heard and uh, watched uh, on platforms across the country. Tell us a bit about the movie, the docudrama slash documentary, No Safe Spaces. Well, we feel like our movie is a, a movie about how America is special. And it's always been special because it's a place where people could come and believe what they want to believe and say what they want to say and express themselves in the manner that they wish to do so. And lately that's under that's come under attack and, and in a dangerous way. And so No Safe Spaces dives into a very important issue in, in our country today. And we, of course, you mentioned Adam Carolla and, and Dennis Prager, who are really a great dynamic mm-hmm. duo yeah. on this. Um, Adam is very funny. And, of course, Dennis is very, very insightful. And uh, they're just a, it's, it's almost kind of a buddy movie, the way they uh, travel around and we go all around the country uh, with this film. Uh, but uh, we, we really, with this film, want to uh, raise awareness and, and really open people's eyes to how serious and how dangerous this has become. Um, even as we were making the film, I think we didn't even quite realize how uh, deep and how dark this issue is in, in American culture. And not just on campuses, but in society at large, we're seeing this suppression of speech happening in tech, uh, in the media, and uh, even at places at work. People are afraid to... Uh, speak up there about their real opinions about mm-hmm. uh, any, any number of issues. So. Yeah, I, I so often read about professionals who hold a particular point of view based on science, their practice, have uh, expressed right. some skepticism, but they're afraid to move forward with that because they know it will cost them their career. I think for many of us, we imagine these assaults to the free speech are annoying. They're some, sometimes comical. But this film encourages us to take as seriously as we ought the challenge to this notion that we have the right to speak our minds and to say what we want to say. That's no longer the case in many quarters that we need to be made aware of. Right. I think people will be surprised about how yes. close this really is. Uh, you know, I think that's one, one thing I'd like to emphasize about this film. It's not just about what's happening on college campuses, although um, a lot of it, a lot of these bad ideas do tend to start on college campuses. But this this issue and this danger is closer to people than I think uh, a lot of people realize. And you can simply just express an, an opinion, whether it's opinion of faith or anything else, and, and face a real danger of possibly losing your job or being uh, ostracized or any number of things that can, that can potentially happen to you. Um, if you have any sort of individuality at all, um, we're getting to a place here in our, in our society where the, you know, the, the, the crowd that wants to shut you down is, 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 is drawing nearer and nearer and nearer to just about everyone. 
and gaining more influence in places where one would expect this would be uh, opposed vigorously, uh, which, again, is a very sobering thought. Now, people might think, okay, docudrama slash documentary, is this going to be a droll, dry uh, review of the uh, of the facts? I would answer resoundingly, no, that is not the case. But explain to our listeners what they can expect. Well, this isn't just a typical documentary. No. In fact, we don't really even, we're not even calling it a documentary. We're just calling it a film. We put a lot into this film in, in terms of just making it a entertaining uh, film about a very important subject. And so we brought in a, a lot of different different ways of doing that. We did animation. We did reenactments. We did a lot of things to just make this film much more entertaining than what you would normally watch with a documentary, say, on Netflix or on the History Channel or wherever, where you just have talking heads going on and on about a, a subject. Um, we really did try to make a very entertaining film. In fact, actually, it was Dennis Prager, when we got started making the film, he told all of us as filmmakers, listen, guys, above anything else, I want this film to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think we accomplished that goal. And um, I think when people, you know, when they go to the theater, they're going to have that cinematic experience that, that, that gives, it makes it okay for people to go out on a Friday night and spend 15, 16 bucks because we really feel like we've done a good job of making this story entertaining, making it big making it a, a uh, experience for them to watch. Now, there's an interesting cast of characters that are part of this film. Tim Allen, Van Jones, um, Alan Dershowitz, Ben Shapiro, Cornell West, Dave Rubin. Yeah. Rubin. Uh, again, this is an interesting collection of people, all uh, affirming a particular point that once historically we would all have embraced as being a given in this country. Right. This movie isn't just a bunch of conservatives. It's, it's a very balanced film. We have people from all over the political spectrum talking about what we believe to be a very foundational issue, not a partisan issue, mm-hmm. but a foundational issue that, that really affects all of us. And, you know, it's disturbing that, you know, you, all people could agree, conservative liberals in the past, uh, we, we've sort of gone back and forth on this, but most people could agree that I may not agree what you have to say, but I wholeheartedly support your right to say it. And unfortunately, today, that's changed in, in, some, in some places. And so that's what we're raising the alarm on. And that's why we put people from the left and from the right in the movie, so that we could make a film that would be palatable for everybody, so a film that everybody could, could watch and understand that these principles that we're fighting for are foundational. Now, the film has been given a PG-13 rating. That might uh, cause some of our listeners to question who's, who's welcome at this, at this uh, movie. Well, it's, it's serious subject matter, and we do show some things that happen, uh, for example, on college campuses that are a little disturbing and maybe a little bit hard to watch for a young, young child. But I do feel like you can take most of uh, your, your, your children to see this film. There's a little bit of language, but not really, mostly coming from protesters and such, but nothing R-rated. And uh, there's a little bit of aggression from these protesters that, that's shown in the film, and that's why we got the PG-13 mm-hmm. rating. Um, the, the subject matter in and of itself can be a little disturbing at times when you see what's happening around the country around these issues. Well, and that's absolutely necessary to make the point. This is what's going on in our country today. And you can't just sit back and be a bystander. Uh, Our First Amendment rights are under attack. They need to be protected, and we need to play a role in protecting them. We're talking about no safe spaces. You have the right to remain silent. That's opening in theaters here in the Portland metro area uh, Friday, and I would encourage you uh, to check this out. It's one of the most important films, I think, of the the year. You can find out more on Facebook at No Safe Spaces Movie. Uh, You can also uh, look it up online and uh, purchase your tickets there. Uh, as well. Anything else we need to know about this movie as we're encouraging listeners to take advantage of the opportunity to see it? 
Well, really, we're really hoping people nationwide come out and send a message, and uh, it's just a way to fight back against this uh, tyranny that we see taking place. Uh, you need to go to nosafespaces.com. There's a, a theater listings. You can buy tickets there. Uh, but we probably won't be in theaters for very long. So this is the opportunity to get out, invite your family and your friends, and uh, support the film. Absolutely. Nosafespaces.com. Thank you so much for making the movie, and thank you for talking with us here today. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Again, Justin Folk is director of No Safe Spaces. You have the right to remain silent, featuring Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla and many others opening in theaters in our communities uh, on Friday. And as he pointed out, this is a limited release. So if you plan to see it, you need to see it uh, sooner rather than later. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Mark Stewart. He's the author of Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. Of course, he was the lead singer of Audio Adrenaline. That's coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I've been looking forward to a conversation with Mark Stewart. The name is probably familiar to you. He was the lead singer of a very popular uh, rock band, Christian rock band. And his book is titled Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose. Well, it's the incredible story of a lead singer's rise to fame, his crushing fall when he lost his singing voice, his career, and his marriage, and then found a new calling that's more in tune with God than he ever thought possible. Well, Mark Stewart was the front man of popular Christian rock band Audio Adrenaline at a time when Christian music, the scene was exploding. Advancing from garage band to global success, the group sold out stadiums all over the world, won Grammy Awards, and even celebrated an album going uh, gold. But after almost 20 years, Mark's voice began to give out. When doctors diagnosed him with a, a debilitating disease, the career with the band he'd founded and dedicated his life to building was now gone. Then, to his shock, he, um, his wife ended their marriage, and he believed he'd lost everything. He wasn't sure about his future. He traveled to Haiti to help with the band's ministry. And the rest, as they say, is history. And we'll talk a bit about that today. Well, again, Mark Stewart, perhaps best known as the lead vocalist for the Christian rock band Audio Adrenaline, is a songwriter, singer, speaker, missionary, and advocate for vulnerable children in Haiti. Although he calls uh, Franklin, Tennessee home, he travels full-time with his wife, Aegis, and their two children in their family RV. Yeah, I've been thinking about that since I, I learned it. Again, the book is titled Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose. Mark Stewart, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, I think everyone wants to know, how are you doing vocally? Well, um, basically the same. Uh, you can probably tell uh, with my scratchy vocal, even on the phone, um, that my voice doesn't work and it hasn't gotten... Uh, any better. In fact, it's probably gotten about a little bit worse, but it's, it stays close to the same. I, I developed a vocal disorder called spasmodic dysphonia, and that's what took my singing voice away. And when I have to speak um, loudly or try to project my voice, the muscle spasms kind of take over and my voice breaks apart. Mm-hmm. So in essence, I, lo- I lost control of my voice, which is pretty ironic. Yeah, it certainly is. The very thing that had brought you fame and fortune, if you will, um, being disabled in, in that way. You begin the book reflecting on your, your youth. Your father was a preacher, you write, and a singer, and I learned about God somewhere between the two. Talk a little bit about uh, your early years and how your music influenced your life. 
when my dad um, was a was a Southern gospel singer and a and a preacher pastor. I grew up in the church Sunday morning, Sunday night youth group, Wednesday night Bible study. I was the president of the youth group. Uh, for me, it was a comprehensive thing that my dad presented me was the intellect of being a, a Bible scholar. He was a professor and very wise man and very studious of the Bible, but he was also a singer, which incorporated, in essence, a lot of storytelling, a lot of emotion. And because of those two things, I was just immersed and enamored with the story of the gospel. And that's um, that's. You know, how I found Jesus was because of my dad and growing up under his tutelage. And mm. he's still preaching today. And I, he was a missionary, and I've, I've always been a fan of his. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a marvelous thing to be able to say about uh, about your father. In the first chapter of the book, you write about the Dove Awards 2003. You had had some challenges with your voice prior to that, but it was being managed. Can you tell us a bit about the 2003 Dove Awards and, and you... Um, being called upon to perform, and the fear that had to grip you to some degree, not knowing if your voice was going to uh, to function. Yeah, it, we were up for uh, Album of the Year and Song of the Year uh, in 2003. The, probably my favorite song of all time from Audio Drone was a song called Ocean Floor, which basically um, talks about the depths of God's grace. Our, our sins are thrown into the bottom of the ocean, and it, it just resonated with people and we loved singing it, especially me, because I was struggling with so much, especially the, really the shame of losing my marriage was falling apart. Um, and that song every night would speak life to me. So this night, we were up for the grant, uh, the double award uh, for that song. And Stephen Curtis, who we had been on tour with uh, for about 80 cities a couple years before that, was introducing us. But prior to that, um, my voice wasn't working. And a lot of people thought I was just hoarse, or if mm-hmm. I took a break, it would go away. But for me, I knew something else was wrong, because I was visiting vocal doctors, vocal coaches. They would scope my vocal cords, and they would say, nothing's wrong with your voice. Nothing's wrong with your vocal cords. And that was the frustrating part. So I would go through my career as my voice continued to disintegrate and, be, and get uh, steroid shots, which is basically prednisone. And prednisone would take the swelling down and allow me to sing um, pretty well for six weeks to eight weeks, something like that. And then it would digress back to the normal uh, broken voice. And um, But eventually that, that prednisone would wear off, that it wouldn't have the same effect and my voice wouldn't work. And the, the night, well, just a couple nights, but before the devil words, I went to my doctor and he's like, Mark, we got to stop doing this. And um, I got a shot. And usually I didn't know when that prednisone would kick in. So, you know, literally I was walking on stage in front of eight to 10,000 people that year at the Devil Awards at the Nashville Arena. And um, it was frightening because at that point I was, I was thinking I was about to unveil the fact that my career was over in front of the whole music industry. Mm. Um, but God showed up that night and he allowed me to sing. It wasn't perfect, but it was, it was good enough to keep moving. But anyway, that, yeah, that's how the book starts was that right at the, um, the Dove Awards in 2003, and it kind of rolls from there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's a pretty emotional book about really the uh, the journey of losing control of really everything that I had. Yeah, yeah. One of the recurring themes in the book is uh, the feeling of being an imposter. Now, you are a genuine, sincere man of faith. Can you explain what you meant by that and how you dealt with 
this uh, this feeling that you were an imposter, that somehow you're going to be discovered along the way? Well, the, the, um, I think most of us um, from time to time feel unworthy or mm-hmm. often feel unworthy. And that was a part of this imposter feeling that I had. When, you know, we were walking on stage and doing Billy Graham crusades and Luis Palau crusades. We're, we're presenting the gospel in a powerful way. Um, and, you know, it, it, I just didn't feel worthy a lot of times mm-hmm. to be representing this big, beautiful, perfect God in this kind of broken vessel. But there was two things that really um, made me feel like imposter. It was is the fact that we... We were like um, not that good musically, and because we we kind of felt like we snuck into the party as a band, and, and also the fact that spiritually speaking, sometimes I didn't feel quite qualified to lead and and stand in front of seven, eight, ten thousand people and say, "Here, this is what Jesus means to me." But eventually, I, I realized that's what resonated with our audience is the fact that we weren't perfect, mm-hmm. that we did struggle with our own faith sometimes. And we did struggle with our imperfections. Uh, And then we began to write more about that and embrace that. And that's where God really began to use um, our music and our band. Yeah, that authenticity, I I think, made you very uh, appealing to a lot of people because we do all from time to time feel like people's expectations or um, what they think is true of us exceeds what's actually there. And uh, so I think that's one of the things that resonated with your audiences, that you were authentic. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I also feel like musically, this is a little, I mean, spiritually, yes, I think people, we, we sing about our vulnerability and our often, we, we were pretty transparent. At the same time, musically, we, I think kids and especially young people thought, hey, you know, I could never be in DC Talk or I could never be in Michael W. Smith's band, but, you know, I might be good enough to be an audience, you know, and I think that also rang true with an audience. We were like their their band, you know, back in the day. And that's that's kind of what resonated. But what most people didn't know was the struggle that was going on underneath that for me. There was there was a lot of dark moments and depression walking on stage, even on tour with at the you know, near the climax of our band with Mercy Me, where I really was struggling to even walk on stage. Um you know, looking out into the crowd, just saying, "God, I need you to show up." And then it, it was a it was a battle. But even then, I saw God work. Mm-hmm. But it was just for me personally. I, I didn't think He was good anymore for me. I was like, "How could you let all this happen to me?" Um, and I even even in the midst of this brokenness, I saw Him work through me. But He wasn't really showing up like I wanted Him to for me. And I never lost faith in Him as my Savior or my God, but I did begin to waver on the fact that I, I don't think he was good for me anymore, mm-hmm. like we're, good enough. He he didn't have good things for me. We're going to um, take a anyway. quick break, but when we come back, we'll explore that just a bit. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Mark Stewart. Uh, he is uh, lead vocalist for the Christian rock band uh, Audio Adrenaline. They no longer perform, but he's a songwriter, singer, speaker, missionary, and author of Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Mark Stewart. 
He uh, is a Grammy award-winning lead singer of Audio Adrenaline. And the book is titled Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose. And it wasn't on the stage fronting the band. You write about your your mother. And just before our break, we were talking about some of the challenges that you uh, face. But your mother wrote about your sister who had been diagnosed with leukemia. And in the book, you write, you quoting your mother, this family has been preaching and singing about Jesus for years. We have two choices. We can move forward in fear, anger, or feeling sorry for ourselves, or we can face this knowing God has only good things in store for us. We either believe this or we don't. Now, your mom is an incredible woman. How did that message resonate to you at this moment in your Christian life when you were teetering in wondering whether or not God was sufficient for you, if his grace was sufficient for you, if this is the direction your life uh, should continue to go? Well, I was, needless to say, super proud of my mom. Mm -hmm. I I thought she was so heroic. But at the same time, I watched my dad, uh, in essence, crumble crumble a bit right in front of my eyes as a a faith leader, as a pastor and a gospel singer. You know, he was like, how, God, how could you let this happen? I've moved to Haiti. I'm a missionary for you. And now you let my daughter get cancer. And um, but then my then my mom showed up and said, this is either real or it's not. And at that moment, our family did make a choice. We said, we're believing this. And we moved forward um, in that diagnosis. And with my sister, we lived in a hotel for two years in Memphis at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. And we watched God show up. But that was a challenge to me, too. I remember that moment. And I think it was a precursor, just a, a, a bit of foreshadowing for what God had in store for me. And I think that's how God works in our stories. Mm-hmm. He gives us a bit of foreshadowing in the relationships that we have for what's about to come our way. And that's what happened to me. You quote your um, uh, pastor, Jamie George, who says, There are three idols that drive us, comfort, control, and approval. Uh, talk a little bit about combating these idols and what role that might have played for you in resolving to um, believe that God is sufficient and to move forward in faith. After I went through um, what I went through, I was jaded and really didn't want to be in church anymore. And my pastor just kept speaking out to me, finally got me into community and was really what I was missing. He started to teach me um about God's goodness and the fact that, you know, we do have idols, which were control for me um, and comfort uh, and, and performance. All those and it, it, all those things were, were driving me in audio adrenaline and I didn't know it. And as I was losing control of my voice, I was also losing control of my career. I was, I was fighting to save a marriage, but I couldn't control that either. Everything that I thought I'd prayed for and that God had given me um, – I uh, also was trying to control and manipulate it as well. But it wasn't until I lost everything that I realized that when you completely surrender to him that and and give him control, um, your life begins to move into a bigger place. And and when you live a big life, um, suffering seems minuscule. You're going to suffer. You're going to go through trials, but it doesn't seem that monumental when you know your father runs the universe and he's in control. And that's kind of how, you know, I moved through my life. And that was a moment 
um, after I kind of went through it, it brought some clarity for sure. Mm. Now, you spent some time in Haiti, as you mentioned earlier, as a teenager after your parents moved there to serve as missionaries. And Haiti has played an important role in your life. In fact, you heard while there some children singing about uh, their father's house, which would become the inspiration for uh, Audio Adrenaline's uh, hit song, Big House. Tell us a little bit about that and your connection to Haiti and the ministry that you have been engaged in there for many, many years. Yeah, my my parents um, moved to Haiti when I was a teenager. I fell in love with it. In, I, I always thought Haiti was beautiful rather than broken. I, you know, it is a impoverished nation, but I just fell in love with the beauty of the people, their resiliency, their creativity. And one of the things I remember from a young age was the song that kids were singing, and they would sing Escuvelele, Do You Want to Go uh, to My Father's House? There's joy, joy, joy. There's room, 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 and food. And I wasn't too young to pick up on the irony of kids who didn't have anything, barely a roof over their head, and sometimes not even a, a biological father in place, nor food to eat, was singing about their father in heaven going to prepare a home for them where they could be a kid, where they could enjoy food. And, and you know, I grew up as a preacher's kid, and I was often afraid of the concept of heaven, and, and when I heard that song, I was like, this is what I want to write about. I'm going to write a song for all the kids out there who heaven seems like a distant, cold place. You know, streets of gold to me. And it kind of feels a little cold, you know. I, I realize it's beautiful, but I could never grasp it. But I could certainly grasp a big table with lots of food and rooms for all my friends and my family and a place to play football out in the yard. And I'm like, this is, this is what I want to write about. And um, because of that Haitian song, um, you know, Big House was written, and that was our career song, Georgine. That mm-hmm. song gave us a platform. And now, really, what is it, uh, 17 years later? No, 20, 25 years later, <laughs> I think. Twenty, Yeah, 27 years later, we look back on our career, and we see God at work, that he gave us that song in the beginning to give us a platform, to give us a career, so that someday we would continue to go back to Haiti and work with the with the children, and that that's the beauty of our God. He's so poetic. He's a beautiful author, and he loves intertwining these beautiful moments into our kind of the DNA of our stories. And um, that's the beauty of telling your story and your testimony. That's the power of it because you get to say, "Here's what God did. Here's what He's doing now. Here's how He worked." And even when I didn't think He was there, this is how He was doing good. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what happens. And now we have an organization called the Hands and Feet Project. We care for 120 kids that have been abandoned or orphaned from their parents, and we get to provide family for them. We've reunified over 50 kids with their parents. We do family preservation through job creation. And we're just, hey, we want to provide family for you. And Big House was kind of the genesis of all that. And now we get to provide that house with a family for these kids and show them what their father in heaven has for them someday. It's even going to be, you know, infinitely better than this house that we have here on earth. Um, But that's kind of what we do. Yeah, yeah. You and your wife, Aegis, you've adopted two children from Haiti. How has that changed your uh, your life? Oh, well, I had no kids with my first marriage. and I didn't think I would ever have children. I didn't I didn't know if I was ever going to get remarried, but God gave me this beautiful woman uh, at church there with Jamie George, who we were talking about earlier. And then God put it on our hearts that he wanted me to be a dad. 
and my heart just leaped inside of me and I was like, oh, what a joy. So we, we were able to adopt these two beautiful kids, uh, children, a boy and a girl named Crystalla and Journey. And it is, it, it's been the biggest miracle of my life to be a dad, to get to see what our, how our father adores us and how he wants us to succeed and how he want, how he, our, his love is infinite. It, it's just been a, an amazing journey. Yeah. I've learned so much about the, 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 the characters of God, but they've also taught me um, the burden of, a, of children that have been abandoned by their, their parents, too, because they have a broken story. So they, we talk a lot about that, and that's why I'm so passionate today about working with children in crisis. Yeah. Well, once again, the book is titled Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose, uh, written by my guest, Mark Stewart. I know that your voice isn't what it used to be, but I'm so grateful that you're still using it to bring glory to God and to serve those in need. And I thank you for taking the time to share your story with us here today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Georgie. All right. The book is published by Thomas Nelson, currently available, and goes into much more detail with a forward by Tim Tebow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the headline read, the U.S. is the most generous country in the world. Now, that may not come as much of a surprise. We've sort of held that title for some time. But that's the conclusion of the World Giving Index. It's a ranking that measured how likely residents of 128 countries were to practice acts of generosity. Well, the index from the U.K. is based uh, uh, on a charity aid foundation study. They're based on Gallup's World Poll Survey of 1.3 million people. Well, between 2009 and 2018, interviewers asked respondents whether they had done the following in the last month, helped a stranger or someone they didn't know who needed help, donated money to charity or volunteered their time to an organization. Well, at the top of the list were the U.S., Myanmar, and New Zealand, The countries that scored the lowest were Yemen, Greece, and China. It should come as no surprise that American spirit, driven by Christian morality, should be generous. However, there is reason for concern and reminder that Americans have to strive for vigilance against the spirit of complacency, or perhaps a better word, greed. MarketWatch reports fewer Americans are giving money to charity and their relationship with God may have something to do with it. The share of U.S. adults who donated to charity dropped significantly between 2000 and 2016, according to an analysis released this month from the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy and Vanguard Charitable. By 2016, just over half or 53 percent of Americans gave money to charity, down from 66 percent in the year 2000. Well, that figure held most steady, mostly until the Great Recession. Then it started to drop off and took a dive after 2010. According to the report's co-author, Una Osili, Associate Dean for Research and International Programs at the Lilly School. Well, the decline amounts to 20 million fewer households donating to charity in 2016, the most recent year for which the data was available, versus 2000, the year 2000. I was driving to work just this morning, and I noted in the far left lane, I was traveling down what's MLK at one point, Grand Avenue at another, and McLaughlin at yet another, Um, that two cars had stopped in the far left lane. Well, there was a lot of traffic. Their blinkers or their flashers were on. It was sort of annoying. Why are they just stopped in their lane? I immediately assumed that they must have had an accident. So as we all slowly passed them, traffic trying to get out of that lane, 
I noted that they were helping a gentleman who was probably looked older than he actually was, who had apparently fallen in the street. You could tell that he was malnourished. He uh, was most likely homeless. He may have had a drug or alcohol problem. He did not look healthy by any measure. But these two men had stopped their vehicles uh, in a very inconvenient place at a very inconvenient time to stop and help this old man, at least by all appearance. My guess is he's much younger than he appears uh, to get up out of the street where he had fallen and to help him to the side of the road. As I was uh, passing by slowly, I immediately began to pray. That's one of the privileges we have is to enter into other people's stories when we don't have the opportunity to interact um, one-on-one, but to get to begin to pray for him. And I've been praying for him throughout the day. As these two men, um, these strapping men, with all gentleness and tenderness, helped him to his feet, and he still was staggering to get onto the sidewalk because he had apparently fallen in the road, in the street, to get him to a place of safety, and they remained with him there for some time to make sure he was okay. I don't know how that story played out. I don't know if they took him someplace, if he hadn't eaten, and they fit. I don't know what happened at that point. But there was a moment in which these men, who were most likely on their way to something important, maybe they were finishing their shift at the uh, beginning of the day or starting one, they were dressed nicely, so it looked like they might have been uh, working, had stopped to make sure that this man was all right and safe. And my heart was was lifted to see these men uh, stop and take that kind of care. Um, there is a generous spirit in this country. And uh, while it's expressed oftentimes in terms of financial giving, and that's always a very important tool that we can use to help lift others who are in poverty or struggling or um, need a place of safety. But there are other forms of generosity as well. And my heart was um, really encouraged to see these two men stop and take such great care. Now, they were in two different vehicles, so apparently each of them had uh, taken time uh, to uh, make sure he was all right. Another day, same road, much uh, further down the road, I was driving to work, and I noticed a large dump truck, you know, the kind with the big heavy wheels and the big um, kind of dump in the back where it lifts up and you can uh, dump your haul, I noted that that truck was moving to turn right, and as I watched it, I was at a stoplight, I watched and saw a woman who had apparently um, been knocked off of her bicycle, and she was underneath the we- the large wheels of that vehicle, and I watched in horror at what I thought was uh, this woman's life coming to an end. Once again, though, I noted that people stopped and took care of her. I stopped my car in order to... Uh, stand near her. There were others who were tending to her, so I wasn't needed in that way, but just to pray for her. But again, my heart was um, was encouraged to see so many people coming to her aid and to just make sure that she was all right until law enforcement came and she was taken away um, by ambulance. Uh, it's not just a seasonal thing. Certainly, this is a season in which perhaps we're reminded that we have the capacity to be extremely generous toward others. Um, But I hope that we will seize the opportunity and that it will extend beyond this season of giving, if you will, uh, into the weeks and months ahead. We are a generous people, and I hope we're generous of spirit in the same way that we are willing to give financially, although less so now than in previous years. Well, tomorrow is uh, Friday, and we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. I'm really looking forward to that. It's been kind of a tough, very busy news week, Uh, but we'll take a look at the lighter side of it, and I hope you will join us for that.
Want to thank James Blaine, uh, Blend rather for producing today's program, Justin Mansfield for engineering a portion of today's program, and Clark Hilton engineering the remainder of the program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.